Hi, I'm Ulysses, and you are listening to Music, Meaning, and Mystery Podcast. This podcast is a pilgrimage to the mystery of music. In this episode, we have a conversation with Drew Minerva. Drew is an ethnomusicologist. You will find his YouTube channel linked in the show notes. So you studied ethnomusicology. I want to know uh, what skills does an ethnomusicologist acquire in his training? When I was first interested in joining that program, I had my own set of preconceived notions of what that would mean for me to get a master's in ethnomusicology. And it wasn't until I was halfway through my first semester that I started to realize, oh, this is a little bit different than I, than I originally thought. So what originally drew me to studying ethno was my experiences overseas in Indonesia, working with gamelan musicians and wanting to learn about different musical systems and, you know, and how they work structurally. And, and so I, um, you know, found some programs and found one online that I was really drawn to. And after I uh, was halfway through my first semester, uh, in that semester, the, the, the introductory course was called Field of Ethnomusicology, basically a survey of what the field is. And it was really, it was really academic, heavy on social sciences, anthropology. I was learning about all of these um, things about cultures and societies, you know, and even linguistics and things like that, that, you know, originally I thought had nothing to do with what I was sort of interested in, in, you know, in mastering in. Um, And, you know, and then, um, you know, so it, it turned into what I realized was a was basically a social sciences kind of a degree, you know, where you're not just talking about music, but you're talking about, you know, things that sociologists would talk about, things that anthropologists would talk about. And so in, in, that, in that course, Field of Ethnomusicology, basically you find that there is, no, there is no fixed definition of what is ethnomusicology. It originally, it begins as something that's more interested in, in music analysis, um, which was, I guess, my original notion of what I was interested in doing. Um, but then it sort of, eventually it just sort of expands outward to basically encompass anything that has anything to do with music, whether that's politically, socially, culturally, tangentially is within the purview of ethnomusicology. So the, to answer the question, you know, what skills do ethnomusicologists come out with Right. When you're trained as an ethnomusicologist, well, you do gain knowledge in social theory and cultural studies. You spend a lot of time learning how to critically read academic works from journals and you, you study ethnographies, which is um, field researchers who conduct work among a people group, whether that's out in the world overseas or locally, you know, just within your neighborhood. And you learn to do ethnography on your own. Um, So a couple of courses I took were very practical on the how-tos of conducting interviews and and meeting a a people and um, learning about their music and how they do things. You learn how to hear and see things. And there are the, there are the practical musicking skills as well. And which I was very happy with my program. I took a couple of courses. One of them was called Ethnic Music Theory, where each week we concentrated on learning about specific musical systems and and what are the underlying music theories and appreciating that there's no one music theory, but each musical system has its own endemic theory. Um, We did a week-long intensive in which we were inculcated in a method of one ethnomusicologist in particular, um, where we learned that method of how to do a, a melodic analysis that was that that sort of broke you free from typical ways of transcribing things into notation um we needed to present our findings and so my my the culture group that I, that was assigned to me was a native american church and transcribing and analyzing the the style of the kiowa native americans how they sang their church hymns and um, and so it basically the, those skills had to do with sort of learning how to hear and learning how to think critically about pitches that you cannot represent in notation traditionally and really rhythm and learning about um, how these other elements of music that are important to 
non-Western traditions, you know, you have to have a heightened awareness, you know, studying, studying African music and Asian musics, like the element of timbre becomes a much more, much more salient element to analyze and things like that. So that's on the, that's on the musical hearing side of the training. So I'd say there's sort of two spheres and ethnomusicology is always sort of self-defined as we have musicologically focused ethnomusicologists. These are the ones who focus, who major in the music side of the analysis. And then we have the anthropological side or sphere of ethnomusicology. And these are scholars who focus a lot more on, on the social and cultural and religious meanings of music and, and, and the interrelation between the two. And so what got me into the field originally was the musical side, but I've also developed a huge appreciation for the anthropological side. I would like to see if we can apply your skills to the Bible as a place where uh, there is music. Can you give us a general idea of this land's relationship to music? Well, the first thing that I think about whenever I read about the music of the ancient Middle East is appreciating one that it's ancient. And so there's a time axis and the other that it's specifically bound to this region of Palestine, which is sort of a, a different axis, right? So you can think of time as one and place as another. So the first thing is we're, when, when the ancients are engaging in processes that today we might construe as sonic liturgies, these are, these are liturgies of sound, these are ritualizations of sound with the aid of music instruments and an instrumentarium, text and ways of singing, you're going to find um, things that are similar between the, the ancient Hebrews and their neighbors and things that are unique to them that stem from the deep structures within their culture, right? So what makes ancient Israel unique amongst it, you know, its neighbors is its strong monotheism and, you know, firm belief and worship and adoration of Yahweh as the one and only God. And just that one facet alone, that one theological deep structure influences the shape of the text of the Bible and it influences the direction of the directionality of praise, prayer, and worship. And even the Psalms, you know, how they're constructed, you know, and the, the, the meanings and the structures of how the Psalms are composed, these are all affected by the deep structures that are unique to Israel. But you also see some important similarities with regional neighbors. Even looking at the Psalms, there are Psalms that borrow metaphors um, and and even structures um, that you see in, in in other Semitic you know ancient Semitic cultures as well. So that's that's one thing to consider this time and place that we're talking about. They're not using the word music the way we use the word music today. And I I have kind of a soapbox right now. Um, on on this specific this word music, because it's so loaded with our with our presumption of of what is music and what is not music, and when you do a when you do a cross reference of all the Old Testament references to music, you know when you when you search the words in ancient Hebrew that are actually used for musical processes, you actually find a whole bunch of words, none of which have a one-to-one -one correlation with what we call music. And sometimes Bible translations, when it says, when it uses the word music, that's actually an addition to what the text actually says. For example, if, if the title of a psalm includes that this was for the choir director or that this was for the, the music director, well, the word music isn't actually there. It would just say director, right? And so that we're adding sort of our interpretive lens when we, when we, when we throw in that word music. Um, and so one example of this is today we consider music as a sort of a separate domain of life. We have our food interests, we have our job, you know, we have our families, we have the TV shows we like, we have the books we like to read, 
and we have the the music we enjoy listening to. We sort of we sort of when I say we, I'm talking about the secular modern West, where music is a consumable. It's an interest. It's it's a hobby. It's something on the side that sort of helps you get through the day. Maybe the way video games or movies or food or any other sort of consu- consuming interest might. Um, it, it, it's 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 analogous to something else that we consume. You know, the way we package music and present it is it's represented this way. You go to today, you pay for a subscription fee to Apple Music. Even in the last century, when you're talking about buying albums, buying CDs, buying cassettes, you know, buying individual tracks. And so music, that's what music is today. And then and then as this sort of separate thing, you know, that is that is neatly packaged. The ancients and even many modern indigenous cultures today that 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 still maintain a semblance of its pre-modern connection, they're practicing what we would call music in a way that's really just they're participating in ritual and in liturgy. They are celebrating their identity. They don't have analytical words to say things like necessarily melody or scales necessarily. Some might. Generally, they have instruments that come from their ecology. The music is itself not just about sound, but it's mixed in with environment. It's mixed in with dance. And there's a whole host of other things that that sonic ritual is connected to that's not just about being consumed for pleasure. That's not just about being a, a distraction or a diversion. And so like one, one easy example that I can throw off the top of my head is, well, I'll give you two examples. The first example would be ancient India. The word for music in Sanskrit is sangita. And this word is sort of a catch-all term that's, that's about the performing arts in general. And Hinduism is a very embodied religion. You think of yoga. Yoga where, now I'm not a yogi, nor am I a practitioner of yoga, but in essence, you know, you have a whole bunch of postures that are very, that are prescribed, that are metaphoric, that stem from a Hindu cosmology and understanding of the human person. And, and so these yoga postures derive from that, you know, even, you know, you think of, well, I mean, that, that's why also why the Kama Sutra, right, is, a, you know, a, a book of erotic positions that stems from Hinduism. It's, it's very, it's very bodily, very embodied. Well, music is no less embodied in ancient Indian conception, music instruments, they're actually categorized as limbs, the way body parts would be categorized as limbs. So certain instruments, they're actually, they're actually called major limbs or minor limbs, depending on their role in the music. And so this, this term Sangita, actually, it incorporates dance on an equal, if not greater level of salience to, to the strictly sonic art of making musical sounds. And so there's all sorts of ways that the ancients have construed these types of behaviors, you know, in, in ways that are basically foreign to our epistemology, ways of knowing today. The other example I'd give is a, a, there's a tribe called the Suya in Brazil. They are an indigenous South American tribe and a, a famous ethnomusicologist, Anthony Seeger, spent a lot of time with them. And, and in his seminal book called Why the Suya Sing, um, he says all sorts of really interesting things where he's playing on these themes of our conceptions of what is music and you know what music means. And one of the things that he he mentions is that you know this tribe has no equivalent term for the word music. And whenever he tried to talk to his interlocutors about, you know, trying to get them to talk about the specific sounds, whether that was the specific notes or he was trying to describe a specific sonic phenomenon happening in the music so that he could present a musical analysis, it just was not a relevant conversation for them. And yet this is a tribe that Seeger describes as its its calendar is a symphony. They are waking to song. They're singing in the afternoons. They're singing at night. They have seasonal rituals and they have a whole cosmology in which their, their spatial and sonic and ecological identities are all sort of cohesively bounded in their cosmology and in their sense of self and their their participating in music is also connected to that so you might just think of it as one cohesive complex whole 
that is their culture. And, and, and music as, as, a, as a separate domain of thought and behavior is just not separable from the rest of that. So that's a, that's a long, long about answer to get about, I think, the, the heart of your question. Yeah. I see a contrast between compartmentalization versus integration. Is that a fair generalization of the phenomenon between the modern secular West versus non that? I, I think that's a good summary of that concept. Yep. Um, and I think that that could, that's, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why that is. I think, you know, when, when Max Weber talks about the disenchantment of the West, which disenchantment has become such an important theme today, he cites modern capitalistic bureaucracy, the, the, the desire to control things and put things in boxes and time cards and systems and procedures and, and sort of, you know, dividing up your life into, into, into all these compartments. And I, I, think, I think there is something to say about when you remove the thing that makes you a holistic, cohesive unit as a society, right? Then, then you know, I think when, we, when, when I talk about music as being compartmentalized, I think that's, that's one symptom. There are many symptoms that point to that common problem that Max Weber saw. At the beginning, you stressed the importance of how uh, the operating theological assumptions of the ancient Israelites informed the rest of their relationship to the world, and as a result, music. Now, I'm not a historian or a theologian, uh, but it's, it seems to me like the change to how we relate to the world and as a result music is is rooted possibly in somewhere around the enlightenment where the center of the world uh changed position where the center of the world was the world a holistic being in an animistic terms it was you know the world <laughs> and in the christian terms it was god and the Enlightenment repositioned the center of the world being, you know, something like the individual. And music, you know, was taken out of the proverbial church and the literal church. Mm. And be, instead of music being an expression of the world, it became its own object uh, towards which reverence was given and was seen as an expression of an individual rather than an expression of the created world. That's a really good place historically to begin talking about when, when we start thinking of music in, in this way. So let me give you a quote. This is uh, President John Adams around the time of the Enlightenment. He says this about music. He says, I must study politics and war that my sons may have liberty to study mathematics and philosophy. My sons ought to study mathematics and philosophy, geography, natural history, naval architecture, navigation, commerce, and agriculture in order to give their children a right to study painting, poetry, music, architecture, statuary, tapestry, and porcelain. And so what's interesting, what's striking about this quote is he's illuminating the position of the arts and what they mean and how essential they are to human living, where on the one hand, he's saying the arts are the most important features of human being, you know, and human doing. We, we want the arts. And so I must study these things that are more, more immediate to our need to survive as a people so that my sons can then study the next level up in abstraction, although still, still closely interconnected, you know, with STEM and, you know, world travel and still connected to our, 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 our needs here in, 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 you know, in the world so that maybe at the second generation, my grandchildren, they will live in a secure enough society, a prosperous enough society where they can explore these deeper things of the, of the human person. So uh, in some regards, I actually do agree with that. Uh, I think what's interesting about the quote though, is that it does, it places the arts in a, in a position of luxury, in a position of it's not obvious that we need them to survive, right? And by the time John Adams is writing this, there's already genres of secular music. There's already notions of 
music as leisure. For centuries, and you know, since before the Middle Ages, right, music education was the church, right? If you were going to study music, it would be, it was because you were also studying to become a priest. <laughs> you know, music notation by Guido of Arezzo, he, he invents staff notation a thousand years ago specifically to help monks learn how to chant. Somewhere around the Baroque period, this is the time of Bach, who is still a church musician, but music eventually is no longer the providence of the church exclusively. People have more money, right? And so people want to spend money on like piano lessons. And so there's a, there's a, the, the emerging middle class is one reason that music sort of breaks out of the church and it becomes more of a sort of a hobby. Um, but then you also have wealthy patrons who would like to have dinner music, you know, you know, music while they have afternoon tea. And so Haydn, who is one of the most famous composers of the classical era, he comes before Mozart, after Bach, they sort of overlap. Haydn writes all of his string quartets specifically as settings for accompanying you know, a wealthy patron's you know, dinner time. So already we're starting to move away from from the sense of music that we're talking about, one in which it participates as, as, as part of a holistic complex whole. Maybe this has to do with, you know, once a society gets so big and once technology, um, you know, develops in such an advanced level, you know, that, you know, that you are going to see, you know, various applications of music per se. But by the, by the time we're talking about the enlightenment, we're actually already talking about a time in history when music has already been sort of divorced quite a bit. And then the Enlightenment comes. And then there's this notion that music, music, um, th there becomes the pursuit of what they call pure music, so-called pure music. That's divorced from context where there's beauty in the work of, say, Wagner that is inherent or in Beethoven that is inherent. And, it's, and, it's, and it has its own nature that's sort of apart from our realm. And so that's a, that's another, that's a very artistically bounded definition of music, which is not the same kind of definition of music we would apply to a ritual, to the, you know, the drumming and chanting of a shaman. And so, so, so what we're talking about here is epistemology and, you know, and it's, and it's philosophy. And I, I think a lot of this does sort of come from, uh, uh, there's sort of processes of disenchanting that are, that are taking place from the enlightenment, but at the same time, um, to sort of bring it back to, 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 to Weber and his observation about disenchantment, like music has always sort of been there in the zeitgeist as this is the one thing that we still have that we are sufficiently enchanted by, you know, because it's in our, it's in the Western, in the modern Western frame as sort of this Neoplatonist you know, it's the providence of the soul, right? That's, you know, whenever, whenever you listen to an atheist talk about how beautiful the work of Bach is, you know, on what level are they making those observations? Yeah. So I'm, I'm not sure what else I want to, uh, I want to say on that. You can jump in. Well, you've added a lot more flesh to this idea I had just because of your depth of knowledge, I think of music history. So that's very much appreciated. I'm just trying to decide. Okay, let's let's go here because I want to build on this structure. You because you, you you hinted a little bit at this uh, deprioritization of the arts, um, even though it's yeah, it, you, it, lip service is paid to it as a high, you know, reverential pursuit. And I, I'm going to go to Gobekli Tepe for that. Uh, I don't know how familiar you are with this uh, archaeological dig. Uh, it's, in, it's in Turkey, modern-day Turkey. I do know that this dig does push back the time depth at which it was assumed or conventionally thought of as, as a, where the you know, large structure building skills of humans uh, existed. Yeah. And it was assumed that under large structure building skills didn't arise until the advent of agriculture, so that there was a, a distribution of labor and an infrastructure that allowed for the creation of free time. 
or yeah. something like that. I'm sure I'm going to be corrected somewhere in some comment section somewhere, but <laughs> that's like the, the rough idea. But Gobekli Tepe pushes back the existence of large structure building skills into hunter-gatherer times. I see. And the, and the Gobekli Tepe is a site that is, it's a religious site. Uh, it has no evidence of any agriculture taking place there anywhere around, has no evidence of any um, settling happening, happening there. People didn't live there. It was a place of worship. And all the artwork suggests the same. It has like these T-shaped pillars with all these animal totems on them and some some uh, animal bones i believe were found there so the uh, natural conclusion that people are tending towards is that it was a place of worship for hunter gatherers because okay. you know because they, they they were worshiping basically their their hunter gods right uh, so so these animals but it's interesting these these animals that are not indigenous to that area so it's it's a very strange place incidentally to our topic the the pillars ring when struck they're stone pillars and they are very small at the bottom so structurally they're not strong they don't stay in place that well uh, because they have a small smaller bottom that's embedded into the ground than a than a top so it's kind of top heavy but them being built that way means that they can be struck and ring um, so, so it's very likely a place of worship. So ah. the, the idea that, that the human consciousness developed the arts, astrology, theology, religion as a result of being comfortable because of agriculture kind of gets undermined by the, this discovery. It seems to be the other way around where yes. the, the priority was worship and yes. and the arts and, and all this sort of thing. Yes. Um, so I think I just wanted to add that to build on your some, something you implied in your comment there. So yes. it seems yes, supported by evidence. Yes, you uh, yeah you you sort of completed the second half of what I was intending to say with that original John Adams quote, which is those artistic expressions are like paramount to forming a cohesive society. You know, if you intend to have a group of people that are like-minded, what, what, what's your telos, right? Where, who are you as a people and where are you going as a people? And, you know, and what we know now about any of the ancient peoples is that they coalesced around their, let's we call it religion. That's sort of a modern term, um, cosmology, belief system, cosmos. And the first thing you need to do is, is, is instantiate that in time and space. And you do that through what we call culture. And, uh, it, you know, it happens to be that the things that we're calling art and music and drama, which are secular, secularized abstractions of ritual behaviors, whether if you're talking about singing or if you're talking about acting or if you're talking about painting, all of them originally come from that place of worship, that place of needing to needing to identify and celebrate and manifest the ineffable. Of course, they're going to manifest through the arts, you know, and I, I almost wonder, you know, my wife said something really interesting to me the other day. She, she asked me if, if dreams are a form of art, right? What, if what's happening in dreams is that kind of art. And that's sort of, I just made this connection of like, well, what we're doing with art out in the world is sort of like, it's sort of like we're dreaming in this instantiated physical moment. You know, if we're, if we're talking about, you know, abstract representations, you know, because where do all of those symbols in our heads come from when we're dreaming? Back to, back to the Suya, for example. So like dreams are an important way that people learn music. New songs are not composed because a composer is looking to get a gig, you know, or to make some money. So they compose some music to sell, you know, the, in, in the Suya, for the Suya, at least at the time when Anthony Seeger was doing his research, the way new songs arise, it's kind of bizarre for us to learn about it now. Basically, what, what first has to happen is you have to become cursed by a witch. And in order, the only way that a witch can curse you is if someone who is a witch, and that could be a man or a woman, asks you if they can, if they can have something from you to borrow something, right? And then you say no. Then 
then there's the risk that you'll be cursed. And it might turn out that that person was a witch. Those who do become cursed by a witch, what that means is that your soul becomes dispossessed from your body. And then you enter into this, basically your soul or your spirit departs and then it, and then it goes off and it, and then it, it, it ends up in, in the spiritual world with maybe it's the bird spirits or maybe it's, you know, the, the, the goat spirits, or maybe it's the fish spirits. And, and basically you're, when your spirit is convening with the, you know, the mice or the, the spirits of the birds or the spirits of the fish, your spirit can understand their songs. And so when the mice are singing together in that spiritual world, well, it sounds in the physical world, like, like just them squeaking, right? There's no, intelligible translation from the mice squeaking to what the spirit can perceive as song in the spiritual realm. Well, then your spirit, you, through that spiritual realm, then this person who's in this liminal state, right? He's no longer a whole person. His soul is with the spirits, but his body is still on the, you know, in the physical earth. Well, now they can hear new songs being sung in the spiritual realms. And that's how, that's how new song comes into being for the suya. It's not someone who's just composing melodies. And, uh, and so there's an interesting connection back to my point about dreams and, you know, the original arts and cave paintings, you know, what are they doing with these abstract illustrations? They're not trying to make perfect, iconic, photorealistic imageries, right? You know, when tribes dress themselves up as birds or some kind of animal and they're dancing around the fire, what are they doing there, you know, with that? What's the purpose of that? Well, today, our art sort of come to us from those liminal instantiations. I want to try to read something from Dante here. Okay as an intro to the music and sound thing. Okay. So I just got to find it. Cool. Okay. It's from, so first of all, Dante is a song. <laughs> uh, the Divine Comedy, rather, is a sound, song separated into cantos. So it's already the, the we got a relationship between uh, the word, sound, and music, poetry. Um, in Canto 30, uh, 28 of Purgatorio, uh, it's um, in my translation here, it's line 103 starting. Dante is, has uh, a, uh, reached a terrestrial paradise, it's called, but it's still in Purgatory. Or, or the place between purgatory and heaven. And it's a garden, and the garden behaves strangely to Dante's point of view. And he meets this spirit, a kind of a dreamlike spirit, and he's confused, and he asks the spirit why this place is the way it is. And the spirit says... Now, since the universal atmosphere turns in a circuit with the primal motion, unless the circle is broken on some side, upon this height that all is disengaged in living ether, doth this motion strike and make the forest sound, for it is dense. Mm. So I find this, this uh, book, very difficult to understand, but I think what it is saying is that the motion of the world is vibration mm. and it causes as, as the world moves, whatever it is that animates the world makes sound because where we live the terrestrial paradise, the garden, the place of matter is dense. It's like strumming a guitar. <laughs> yeah, I see. Hmm. I think that's what is being said here. And it's, and I was comparing it with a, a Sufi that I'm reading. Uh, Azrat, I think his name is. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, Azrat Khan or something. Is, is that... Which book is that? Did you know the name off the top of your head? Music of Life. 
I, I don't know that one. Other yeah. Book, so, another, another book of his on Amazon. Okay. Um, well, he's, he'll melt your brain for sure. Um, <laughs> the, the idea is the same because everything moves. Mm. It is animated and that's why it makes a sound. Um, so it's almost like whatever sound is, is like God playing guitar or something like that. So it's, uh, it just got me thinking about the nature of sound and how we, again, compartmentalize it from music, um, which is not what ancients necessarily did. Like the indigenous, a lot of indigenous, you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, a lot of indigenous instruments are designed to imitate uh, sounds out there, thunder and, and birds. And so... <laughs> uh it's not well, yeah. music music that music's not like separate from from the sound um yeah. help help me be coherent here yeah um yeah i'm just gonna riff on some of the points that you're bringing up um so the first thing is it's actually not people have made this observation for a long time and many people who are just intuitive about how the world works, how life seems to work. Maya Angelou, there's a quote from Maya Angelou on my wall in my classroom that says, uh, I'm going to get the quote exactly wrong, but essentially the universe, everything in the universe has a rhythm. Everything is dancing. Um, and so that, that, that's another, that's another you know, interesting quote to point to what you were bringing up. Another thing I'd say I read recently, in order for sound to be recognized as sound as such and not just vibration, right? From the scientific lens, all sounds physically are vibration. But in order for there to be sound, you need someone to perceive the sound, you know, in order, in order for someone to legitimate that the thing that was vibrating was indeed sound. Um, to then extending to your point about indigenous folks, you know, tribes that have a little bit more holistic awareness and understanding and appreciation for the sounds in their ecology. There's a people in Papua New Guinea, basically there's an ethnomusicologist, Stephen Feld, who spent a long time in the Basavi rainforest. And he spent a lot of time documenting and filming and doing audio recordings of various tribes in the Basavi rainforest where in their Stephen, Stephen Feld did some interesting things. He came up with this term. He, he coined a term. Um, it's, it's a play on the word epistemology and acoustics. He called it acoustemology and acoustemology is a, a triangle connecting uh, ecology, sound and uh, cosmology. Right. So you might think of it as like mythos, you know, plus environment plus, well, this other X factor musicing thing that we're doing. Right. He sort of, and so he sort of connects those three points together. And what the, what the Busavi peoples do, especially this group called the Kaluli, is, well, their instruments are the sounds of the rainforest, where, okay, so they sing and, there's a style of singing. First of all, that the word that they use for music is not, again, it's not music. The word that they use, that's just the closest thing that translates to music is it literally translates into English as lift up over sounding. All right. It's all those words put together. That's the word for music. And um, what that's trying to say is, you know, if you're in the rainforest, sounds are constantly running into each other, overlapping. There's no end to sound. It just goes from leaves, rustling in the wind to birds chirping. And there's a lot of birds in, in the Basavi rainforest um, to the sound of rain, to the, the rivers flowing. And so their song imitates this, for example, by you're familiar with call and response as a famous texture in African-American work song music and things like this. Well, there's, they have more of a, a heterophonic type of echoing pattern 
that stems from their cosmology about the coherence of the rainforest, which is basically one person starts to sing a line and then just like maybe one or two seconds later, the next person sings that same melodic line just a couple of seconds back, you know? And so it's almost like a canon. You could think of it that way. And so this sort of echoing is sort of an imitation reflection sonic um, uh, you know, demonstration, ritualization of their understanding of the sounds of the rainforest. They're in their acoustomology. In addition to this, they view the sounds of the rainforest, the natural sounds, as as if they are music instruments. You know, not that they are non-music and are incidental. Right. This would be that would be sort of our working definition of sound versus music. Sound as opposed to music. Um, well, in the in their acoustomology, you know, while they're singing, there's also these sounds happening around them, which are which are which come from their ecology, and in that worldview, this is part of what they call lift up over sounding, because their voices are also part of that sonic mixture, you know. So those are some ideas on the table. I don't know. I forgot what your original question was. If you wanted me to hit something sound versus music. Yeah, I didn't really have one. I was just basically uh, making a, a desperate plea to help me be coherent. And I think you did. <laughs> <laughs> so if I could add to that. Um, so that's, that's one, that's the one side of it. I would say that the Bosavi rainforest, that example is almost entirely holistic understanding of, of sound and music where where there's no clear transition from speech into um, now you're in a musical domain called song. What's interesting is that the Kaluli, they don't, they don't have a large vocabulary, you know, for things that we would consider basic to have lots of words for, but they have an enormous taxonomy of, of bird melodies, right? The songs that birds make. And so they, you know, they, they would recognize if someone imitated a bird call, they would be able to name the bird exactly. And, uh, and so this is an example of a people who have a very holistic awareness of, of sound and what it means. I think what's an interesting comparison would be to go back to the ancient Greeks and consider, you know, the, you know, Bethius's theory of the music of the spheres, you know, where, you know, in the classic education, you, you know, that you have the, the trivium and the quadrivium which are the, the, those are, these are the, in the curriculum of a classic, you know, education. The quadrivium is made up of what we would call STEM fields today. You have math, uh, trigonometry, astronomy, and then like music's in there. It's like, why is music in there? And that's all connected to um, discerning the, you know, the logos of reality through, through, you know, space and time. And so, um, you know, number and pattern is really important. And, you know, in, in Greek music, you know, in, in the Greek theories of tunings, you know, the, the whole idea of the divine monochord that, you know, God has tuned the universe, you know, with this, with this monochord, you know, all, all that to say that there are these perfect ratios that are found in musical intervals, which is, which is the, the, the basis of where we get our modern, modern day harmonies from, you know, that's another example of sort of a holistic, you know, awareness of what is sound. And, and so Bethius had the, the, I think it was Bethius, had the three levels, you know, the, the musica, um, musica mundana, which would be, you know, the music that we hear, that's the lowest level of music. That's music on a sonic perceptible level. You have the musica humana, um, which is sort of like, I, I, I struggle to define this one. It's sort of like human consciousness. I don't know if that's totally how, how to describe it. And then there's the, I forget the, the actual Latin, but essentially it's the music of the spheres, um, which is, you know, that, which is the, the motion of, you know, the, the, the cosmos, which, which moves according to the same principles we see in trigonometry and astronomy, you know, and, and, and arithmetic and things like that. Um, you know, and, and uh, yes. thinking about the concept of sound, you know, that, that concept of, you know, sound, Versus as opposed to music, um, you know, I, I think it's, we, we do need to have a ritualization factor, I think, in order for us to, to show a clear departure from just behaving, you know, just sort of following the normal stream of what you're, 
you know, your, your behaviors are going to be into a, now we're entering into this community sphere of identity renewal and, you know, and, and we're all gathering together to celebrate this thing that we all agree on and believe in and celebrate and embody. And we all have this transcendent desire, this, this, this object of transcendence that we're all rallying around. And so I think this is where it is important to then make a distinction between things that are, let's say mundane sounds versus things that are, you know, we're in pursuit of something that we know is beyond what we're just perceiving on the surface. And so that does raise an interesting question about, well, what's going on with the Basavi rainforest peoples, you know, where they, they don't feel a need to transcend their world is already enchanted. Right. Um, so th those, those are some more ideas on the table. Yeah. I think we're going to need a bigger table. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're an educator, music educator. So we, we got all these things where we're, I think we've made a pretty strong case that there's room for the secular modern Western mind uh, to, to expand or learn from, uh, from other other like new new ancient ways i like to say so mm. what uh, how can we distill this to actionable items to you know the upcoming generation of musicians wow that's a that's a really important question you know the my first observation is that we have no idea what we're doing with music we have no idea why we make music we just do it and uh, it, it's not obvious what is our relationship with music as, you know, as Paul Vanderclay said in my conversation with him, he's like, we don't know what's going on with us in music. And, and, and I say that all to say this, there's another quote on my window that um, this is my students say, this is, this is their favorite quote that I have. It's a quote from Harry Potter um, from the Sorcerer's Stone. And in this scene, they're all sort of having their convocation together as a school. And then they sing, like, I think it's their school song or something. And then after they're done singing, Dumbledore, the headmaster, he says, he says, ah, music, a magic far beyond anything else we do here. And I think that is such an interesting thing that J.K. Rowling sort of slips into the book as sort of, it's almost like her awareness, you know, um, that what music is for us today is on an almost literal level what magic is in the world of Harry Potter. So we have an idea that music it's like, why do we have music education in, in secular public education? A lot of it is currently, currently the buzzword is to have a well-rounded education in public documents about, you know, with the national standards for music education, say, say things like the arts are important for students to learn modes of like self-expression and being able to convey emotion and, you know, things like this, you know, that we, we, we have this awareness that the arts are for emotions, they're for self-expression. And so that's why we do music. You know, but what I'm more interested in is helping students recognize that, you know, when we're making music, we're, we're participating in something that's, we don't really know what it is we're doing. And in my belief, my philosophy of what it is that we're doing is we're participating, we're engaging in this, what I'm just calling ritualization of sound. I don't use that word with my students you know, cause I'm busy hashing away at scales and, you know, learning repertoire and things like that. You know, we have, we have more mundane needs, but you know, we do, we do things like we play music at concerts and they're supporting the athletic events and they're, and they're engaging in these ritual behaviors, you know? And so I think it's important to continue to pass down music from generation to generation, whether that's through, you know, what I do choir band and, you know, guitar class, you know, with the jazz ensemble thrown in the mix you know, or, you know, some other mode. I, I think we're in this era where, where kids, you know, especially those who listen to a lot of music, like they know it's self-evident to them, you know, how important music is. Music's with them all the time. It's their constant companion. You know, when you're, you know, when you're feeling down, there's always some musical artist that you can find and go to, you know, find your favorite songs to, to empathize with, you know, and, you know, with those emotions. You know, I, I think, I think with what I do as a music educator is I'm, I'm an initiator. I, I, I almost, I almost would like to call myself, I'm a music initiator, you know, rather than an educator per se, because what I do every day, I'm the, I'm the chief musician in the room every day. And my goal is for them to emulate me. And, and so I'm passing on things that I've learned about the music that they're studying 
and I do that through demonstration. I do that through, you know, analysis. I do that through showing recordings to them. You know, I'm inviting them into this bigger world of human participation, you know, in this thing that we're calling music, you know, with the hope that maybe some of them will find purpose in engaging that with that themselves. And I believe that the only reason we can make music, you know, the only reason we, we do the arts and do as I think it's an extension of, I think it's an extension of the image of God within us. You know, God is the creator. We are his image bearers who are creative, right? And so he creates ex nihilo. We create ex creatio, you know, in the sense that God creates something out of nothing. And then we use the things God create has created to, to create new things. Um, you know, and so I always, you know, I always hope that, you know, as, you know, as, as friends who, you know, I, I, I told the, I told, you know, I told the story of, you know, a, a friend of mine who, who was an atheist, but is also like super into, you know, rock and roll, do metal music. You know, I, I always hope that, you know, they can see sort of the, the irony in the position of, you know, being against, you know, you know, faith in God, you know, because of a rationality you know, thing, you know, because rationally they just can't wrap their head around it. And yet they still participate irrationally in this domain of human behavior that is nonetheless part of who he is as a person. Um, and yet, and yet it's an experience that even he would describe as transcendent, you know, communal, otherworldly, even um, that sort of bypasses the brain in a lot of ways. You know, in fact, you, you know, it's in the way you want it to get out of the way for you to fully experience the moment of making music. And so, you know, as I initiate my students into these, you know, into this way of making music, the ways that I teach them, you know, through their instruments and through their voices and with the songs and, and traditions that we, you know, that we, that we relate with, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that, well, it does help them. It does. It is good for them to, to be thinkers. You know, it is good for them, you know, just as a learner, right? I think music is good for everybody. And I think going back to the thing about bureaucratization and, you know, the Western, mod, the, the modern Western secular state of things, the disenchanted world of things being bureaucratized. Yeah, we have this idea that only the talented few should, should do music, you know, and if you don't have the talent, then you shouldn't study it. The suya expect every single villager to sing. There is no notion that, you know, there's the gifted few who ought to sing. And then the rest of us are, you know, we, we just watch them present. Um, and so, and so I, I always try to get all of my students involved, participating as much as possible. Um, so that, you know, as the Bible says, from the greatest of them to the least of them, you know, their roles were assigned and they still participated in, in, in a way that was, in a way that was enriching to them and in a way that, you know, binds us together as a community, you know, of music learners. And, and indeed we do fulfill sort of a priestly role for our campus in the sense that we do sort of, we almost sort of sacramentalize, you know, our assemblies through a performance. And it's like, okay, we're going to go through the announcements. We'll have a, we'll talk about this topic of the day and then we'll have the choir sing a song, you know, or especially if it's the school song, there's this sense of, you know, the school spirit, Paul Vanderclay likes to use the school spirit as an analogy for, well, what is school spirit? You know, what's going on there? And so, and so we sort of foster that and, and open that up, um, that domain of being in the world um, through what we do as, as performers. So before we go to the traditional closing question, is there mm -hmm. something that uh, you wished I would have asked you about or something I forgot uh, um, if there's something you want to promote or, well, uh, yeah, that's, that's good. Um, yeah. And you know, the other thing, Ulysses, thank you for taking your time and, you know, let me ramble off all these ideas. There's just one thing that I wrote down here that I, that I would like to sort of get in, which is sound and meaning, you know, there's the idea of, of, you know, is music a, like a universal language and, I've lately been learning a lot about how popular music genres sort of function in modern Western secular society as, I don't know if I want to call it placebo religion or replacement religion, but um, you know, I'm, I'm reading a really great book that I would highly recommend to you. Um, it's called Traces of the Spirit by Robin Sylvan, The Religious Dimensions of Popular Music. There's lots of great things in there. There's also a, there's also a whole... Uh, handbook on all these different, you know, popular music genres and how it connects to, to, to religion. People are studying that a lot these days. It's sort of actually, it's actually a, a, gro a gaining, a growing interest among uh, sociologists of music. 
you know, I'm starting to, you know, recognize that, you know, genres, these popular, what are you talking about, rock or hip hop or um, jazz, folk, bluegrass, country, these are not things that you can just hear and automatically understand and appreciate if you're not already initiated into the community who makes that music. And so I think one of the ways that, you know, musical styles, even secular music genres, embody this same thing that we've been talking about, you know, where, where communities form and they have a soundtrack and, and they make music, right? I, I, think, I think the reason music is not necessarily a universal language because we need to be initiated into these different styles. And so that's also, that's another reason why I like to sort of refer to myself as a music initiator, you know, because I'm not educating them on the one music that's going to universally apply to their lives. I'm initiating them into these traditions that we're doing, you know, but there are all sorts of other musics that you're not even, you're, look, you're just not going to appreciate certain styles of music for the sole purpose that you're not, you're not initiated in that community. And, you know, if you were, if they were your buddies, right. And then they take you to a rock concert and then suddenly you have a, you know, a relationship and a memory made, you know, with that style of music, then you're more initiated into it and you're more open to hearing about it. And so that's where I think faith sort of comes into the mix when we're talking about genres and, and secular music, you know, where, because earlier we were talking mostly about these, these indigenous tribes, these small groups, and they don't have a word for music. And a lot of that's just because they don't have a whole bunch of different styles happening. Now, now they do. A lot of those old studies a lot of those studies are sort of outdated now. I mean, with the increase of technology and things like this, like the radio has come into those places and guitars have come into a lot of these indigenous, you know, villages. And that has changed a lot in their sort of concept of what is music and sound, which is, that's a very interesting thing to talk about in its own. Um, you know, but, you know, I think there is a lesson to be learned and a story to be told about, you know, what do, what do genres represent? And, you know, for me, I think they do sort of represent on some level, you know, communities of, of faith. You know, so that's, that's sort of something that I've been, I've been learning about and wanting to explore more. Yeah. We'll have to do this again uh, because there's just, I would love to. you know, I'll, I'll see if I can get a bigger table and we bring more ideas here. And uh, <laughs> that was fun. That was fun. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, for sure. And uh, so what should people listen to? I mean, I was thinking about this question. I knew you're going to ask me, you ask all of your guests and I'm like, gosh, I just don't know how to answer this question. Because on the one level, it's like, I don't know if I'm in a position to be able to tell people what they should listen to, you know, and, and if, if we were to apply our conversation today, you're already listening to what you should be listening to if the music or sounds that you're listening to, that you're hearing are, you know, in your acoustemology, if you would permit that word, um, you know, coherent with your worldview, you know, Christians ought to be listening to Christian music you know, as a very basic mundane example. Um, I've been meditating on Psalm 19 a lot lately. And I guess my answer to the question would be, I'll just read the first few verses of that Psalm and I'll let the listeners sort of judge for themselves what I'm trying to say here. So Psalm 19 opens this day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And so what's interesting is that you can't hear the sound, you know, of what creation is declaring about the glory of God. You know, in the verse one, I skip verse one. It says the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. You know, day to day pours out speech, night reveals knowledge, but there is no speech. There are no words. There is no voice being heard. You know, and yet there is this message, there is this meaning, this logos, right? This, this, this divine, you know, the earth is full of God's glory. And yet, you know, it's pouring out this speech and yet it, there is no sound, right? And so I think there is, I think there is something that, that we as humans ought to be tuning ourselves to. And I think that's, um, I think that's tied to finding your, your origin in, the, in, in your creator. For my notes this month, I want to dwell on the invitation Drew extends. What should we listen to? We should listen to what leads back 
back, back further to the source, the origin, the glorious font from which the speechless speech pours, wordless, soundless even. <laughs> 